Extra Crispy is made possible with support from our sponsor, Steve's LEDs. Steve's LEDs for all your LED lighting needs, from horticultural grow lights to aquarium lights to parts and services, you are not going to find better LED lighting systems out there on the market than you will find with Steve's LEDs. Made right down the road from here. Steve's LEDs. Give them a visit at stevesleds.com. Welcome to Extra Crispy. Today is going to be a little bit different kind of format than normal. I'm going to call this a, a monocrisp episode. <laughs> uh, most of the time, my intro on these is Curious Conversations with Crispin Schroeder, uh, your host. Um, but I'm going to be trying something a little bit different and, um, and, and maybe doing this a little bit more often. Um, Last year, I did one episode that was just me. Uh, the The week was, I, I believe it was the last week of September, maybe. And that was the the week where you had the Las Vegas shooter. You also had Tom Petty die in the same day. And it was, it was kind of a raw uh, episode that I released back then. And um, when I looked at the statistics of the downloads of different episodes... Uh, that was actually one of the the third most popular episode that that we have had on this program, and I was kind of surprised because I mean I, it was not very it was not scripted at all. I was just kind of um, sharing some thoughts on things. But moving forward with extra crispy, I think now that I've almost got a year under my belt, I'm I'm kind of thinking of of what direction to take this in. As I've said in previous episodes, I am much more of an experiential learner. I know people who kind of get a vision in their mind. They imagine the whole thing and, and they're very focused on how to pull that off. I don't really work that way. Actually, many of the people I've interviewed <laughs> are kind of like that. Uh, I am more the type to just throw myself into something and figure it out as I go along. So I figure with about a year under my belt, uh, you know, in July, doing this podcast, I've learned a few things. Um, I think number one, moving forward, I'm probably going to focus, uh, and this is just naturally kind of developed. I think probably a good 60% of the episodes in the future will be 60 to 70% will probably be, um, songwriters and musicians. I'm, I'm finding that songwriters in particular, um, because they have to be so thoughtful about putting words together and um, creating that, that they're, they're, they're quite articulate and it, they're fun people to uh, interview and have conversations with. And I was just thinking about this, uh, you know, Joe Rogan podcast, which I, I listened to quite a bit. Um, Joe Rogan, his meat and potatoes on his podcast is really the stuff that I don't listen to much. <laughs> he interviews mixed martial arts fighters and a lot of comedians and that's kind of that that's well over half of his um, podcast but outside of that the, the ones that I tend to listen to he brings on you know science scientists and philosopher different you know journalists people like that and and I think moving forward I, I really do want to have I think it would be great to interview people from the realms of science and technology and philosophy. Uh, I just don't know a whole lot of people in that. I do know a lot of musicians and songwriters. So um, I think moving forward, we're going to kind of keep the format as, you know, around an hour and a half conversations. I do, I do find that kind of the longer format for conversations. I like that. I do realize though, at the same time, there are some people who, uh, don't like having to listen to something for that long. Uh, maybe they just don't have time in their life to do that. Uh, but for people that commute, it, it, it's fine. But what I'm going to be doing in the future, hopefully, is actually chopping up the episodes, you know, having the long form available on the podcast, but also on YouTube, I'm going to probably start cutting these episodes up into 
five or ten minute segments. So uh, if you heard something interesting from you know one of my guests, you know Paul Meany or Andrew Duhon or uh, Jonathan Martin, somebody like that, and um, there, there's a lot of really good segments in there. And so we're going to try to make it easier for people to access like the topical things that come up in that. And again, I learned that from Joe Rogan as well. Uh, Joe Rogan seems to be kind of pioneering a lot of this stuff. Uh, and, and it seems to be working well. So moving forward, I'm going to try to hopefully in the next few months, figure out how to video these episodes as well. Um, which will may may limit the way that I can do this uh, because obviously video works out better if I'm recording in my own studio. I don't know how to do that so much on location. And more than half my episodes that I've released in this last year have been uh, recorded on location. So that's one thing that I'm working uh, working towards as well. And I may actually at some point get a Patreon page uh, for this stuff going because uh, I've, I've invested quite a lot over the last year uh, in time and money and resources to get this thing going. And I feel good about the direction that's going. Um, but that's kind of what I'm trying to do. In addition to that, I'm thinking of doing these little monocrisp episodes, uh, you know, every uh, three to four episodes, um, because I, I have had some people kind of encouraging me to do some thing like, things like that. So that's kind of my plan moving forward. Um, you know, so maybe every three to four ep- episodes, I will uh, share some of my thoughts on things. I have had people ask me that ask me the question that, you know, I am a pastor. Why don't I talk about God or Christianity more? I mean, I, I have had some great conversations about God and spirituality along the podcast, but I... I wanted to to share a little bit of something about that before we get into what I'm the, the things I'm going to be talking about today. Um, my goal in starting this podcast was not to start a Christian podcast. Um, I'm not ashamed that I'm a Christian, or I, I, I think uh, I think the world would be a better place if everybody took Jesus seriously and followed Jesus's teachings. I I absolutely believe that, but I also believe as a pastor. Um and a representative of the church, I think it's good to put myself in a position where I am in a posture of listening and seeking to understand somebody else that, that may not believe in God or, or, or may, or may have very different views. Uh, but, but to really put myself in a position to, to learn and try to understand and, and to, to find some common ground. Uh, I would say over the last three or four years, um, I've been a lot more interested in, the things that connect all human beings uh, that, that kind of transcend our ideologies and our pol- politics and, and, and even our religious ideas, you know, the kind of, kind of the questions that, that we're all asking at some points and, and the ways that we're all connected kind of universally. Um, maybe, maybe this way of thinking just becomes because I, I play music and music is certainly a universal language. I've got people of all stripes uh, and different different backgrounds that that are at any of the shows that I play and and music is such a disarming thing and it is amazing how many people just being a musician that I get to talk to now what I find oftentimes though uh, I, I never introduce myself to people as a pastor because here's what happens I'll let you into my world a little <laughs> when I come up to when I meet a random person out on the streets we're talking and everything's going good for the first few minutes and then they ask me what I do, and I say I'm a pastor. All of a sudden, they start apologizing for cussing. Oh shit! I, I'm sorry, I just said that. Uh, you know, and then then the then the conversation gets awkward. People stop being honest because now they're projecting on you all the issues that they have with uh, <laughs> with the church or guilt that that they're not going to church or whatever, and trying to you know, I don't want to offend your virgin ears. And I'm like, so I, I guess you know, living in these two worlds, being the pastor of a church but also being a musician. I've seen over the years that the thing that that really gets gets me excited is you know through music you you see people disarmed and you can have an actual authentic conversation and that's what I'm really trying to do with this podcast. Um, 
when I look at all of the division in the world, uh, one of one of the reasons I actually wanted to start this podcast was I, I'd been talking for quite some time with friends about, wow, I mean, I wish we could get some kind of thing going where we could get people from different points of view to actually have conversations with one another uh, in, in some public arenas. And we, we could talk about things like... Um, you know the, the the key issues that our world is is facing, um, and so f- for me, you know, kind kind of going back to the uh, the saying from Gandhi, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. I, th- I think starting this podcast was just a simple way that I could actually do something. And I know there's not a, a a ton of people. You know, this this is just a little podcast doesn't have a ton of listeners at the moment. Um, I, I'm not. I would love to have more listeners, uh, but honestly, I think for me, this is such a good spiritual discipline to consistently put myself in a place where I am trying to listen and understand the other person, whether they they believe the way I do or, or have different points of view on other issues, but to put myself in that place, uh, it's it's good for me, and and I've learned so much, and, and I hope that, that, that maybe through doing this, this can maybe help other people do the same thing, because man, our, our world, we're... We're, we're, it, it seems like people are pulling, pulling back into tribalism on the left and the right, and and scapegoating people all the time. And and we got we got to we got to change that. We got to change that because uh, I think the reality is we've got a lot more in common than the things that that divide us. And if we can we can learn to to see that even people who think differently about things. That, that they're needed. Uh, you know, there's, there's several issues that I'm, I'm very conservative on. There's a lot of issues that I'm, I'm, I'm also very liberal on. I feel like I'm lost, you know, in a sense, like I don't feel like there's a political party that represents kind of what I believe, you know, on, on, on many of these issues. So I, I, I feel kind of like I'm, I'm in, in a, in a world world, <laughs> But I, I certainly don't want to live in a world that is completely run by Republicans or completely run by Democrats. I think there's something on both sides that we need. And and honestly, when when people, uh, those who have studied, uh, you know, the human brain and, and different aspects of, of humanity, it, it, I've read it breaks down to about half the population is much more security oriented, which, you know, are going to be leaning more towards uh, conservatism. Half the population of the world is, is driven by wanting to live in a place that is more uh, equitable and tolerant of, of, you know, where, where it's not security oriented. And that's just about the way that half of the people are wired on both sides. But the reality is we need both of those things. (laughs) Uh, either one can become tyrannical, and and we certainly see that in the history of the world. What is needed, though, is to live in that kind of balance. We need to, yes, we need security, but yes, we don't want security at at, at the cost of not accepting outsiders or, or other opinions. We don't want to live in a, in a siloed world. But on the other side, you know, um, there's some real pitfalls to. Um, a leaning that is just strictly tolerant because you can you can kind of lose your distinctives in that place and that can become every bit as tyrannical and we've certainly seen times when socialism or communism has has been greatly tyrannical in our world but we've also seen the same um, with the extremes on the other side as well so this podcast is really perhaps a way that I can just feel empowered to do something, (laughs) Uh, help people talk about things by maybe doing it. So that is kind of the intro of this episode. And, and in these little monocrisp episodes that I'm going to try and try to release uh, from time to time, um, I'm just going to try to, to talk about a few of the things that I've been looking into reading, uh, maybe some things in the news and, and maybe my perspective. I don't share a whole lot of my perspective when I'm interviewing, uh, because it's not about me. It's about interviewing the people that I'm interviewing. So in these podcasts, I'm going to share a little bit about how I am processing things in the world. Uh, just as, as, as a, as a pastor, as a musician, as a husband, as a father, kind of things that I'm seeing and, and um, 
I'm hoping that at some point we can actually uh, develop some ways that we can carry on these conversations, maybe even online with anything. And so I would love to hear any of your feedback. If, if you have any questions, comments, uh, you can send me a message on the Facebook page, direct message me through uh, Twitter. Uh, and, and certainly if you're getting something out of this, uh, leave a comment on, on iTunes. So, Transitioning from there, one of the first things I want to talk about today is the problem of mass shootings. It is sad, you know, I I didn't even remember the last episode that I did that was one of these monologue episodes was uh, September of last year and it was called Learning to Fly. And it didn't occur to me until uh, just yesterday as I was kind of putting together stuff for this episode that... That episode came out of the Las Vegas shooting and and uh, Tom Petty dying, but I was really uh, struggling with just the the tragedy of that. Here we are again, and it was only two weeks ago we had yet another mass shooting, um, kind of near near Galveston. A good friend of mine, uh, Nathan Anderson, actually pastors a church down there, and, and you know he's trying to help uh, the community work through a time of healing down there as well. Um, but before that, it was Parkland. There was also this this um, uh, guy up in Canada who killed 10 people, I believe, with his vehicle. Most of them were women. And, boy, we're, we're just seeing this time and time again. And I, I think the sad thing, I, I think many people are feeling this at this, at this time is, you know, I remember back when Columbine happened and that was so tragic that stuff had not happened before and it just captured the attention of the nation. Um, but now these things are becoming so frequent. I, I it, it almost feels like we're becoming numb to it. Like you just, you, you, you see, Oh, Oh, I guess it's been a few weeks. It's, it's time for another one of these things. You feel sad. Maybe people change their Facebook profiles. Maybe they take to Twitter, talk about gun reform or mental health reform. Maybe get in some arguments on Facebook. But but we kind of have settled into a rhythm, a, a script as a nation. We we get all up in arms about these things for a week or two, and then uh, we get a, everything gets eclipsed by the next thing. Maybe Donald Trump's tweet of the week or the day. And we just kind of settle back into our business and and know that uh, in a few more weeks there will be another horrible tragedy. And I think one of the things that that makes these mass shootings so difficult, unlike the uh, war on terror that we have been in uh, for so long, you know, the the war on terror at least has a group that it is focusing on. You know, uh, Islamic fundamentalist terrorist. Uh, and, and it is easy to mobilize an entire nation when you've scape, scapegoated like, you know, one, one group of people, you've got a, a distinct enemy that you can focus on like ISIS or Al Qaeda. I think what is difficult about these school shootings is that they just seem to defy the imagination. I mean, you, this could be anybody. It could, it could be anybody. I mean, it's, it's typically young guys, but, but even with the, the Las Vegas shooting, we saw that it was an older white guy. Uh, but it's, it's, I, I think that, that what we're seeing in these scenarios, it, it's so hard to, to, um, find an enemy. And so we make an enemy of one another. You know, we, 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 I, gosh, the, the, the things that I see on, on Facebook and Twitter, people arguing for gun control or mental health, um, we're, we're, we're turning against one another. And while I believe Yes, gun reform is is necessary. Mental health reform is necessary. I think neither one of those things are going to get down to the root issue. And it's a hard issue. And I don't pretend to have um, the answer here. But I do think it's got to start with each one of us. I'm going to play you a clip from the Parkland shooter. Um, this was 
uh, released a few days ago, and, and it is quite chilling, but it is not very different from similar videos that we've seen posted by other people. And I'm going to give a, a little commentary on this. Uh, check out this clip. Hello. My name is Nick, and I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. My goal is at least 20 people with an AR-15 and a couple tracer rounds. I think I can do a good time. Location is Stone Douglas in Parkland, Florida. It's going to be a big event. And when you see me on the news, you'll all know who I am. <laughs> You're all going to die. Pew, 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 pew. Can't wait. Today is the day. The day that it be all begins. The day of my massacre shall begin. All the kids in school will run in fear and hide. From the wrath of my power, they will know who I am. I am nothing. I am no one. My life is nothing and meaningless. Everything that I hold dear, I let go beyond your half. Every day I see the world ending another day. I live a lone life, live in seclusion and solitude. I hate everyone and everything. With the power of my AR, you will all know who I am. I had enough of being told what to do and when to do. I had enough of being telling me that I'm an idiot and a dumbass. But in real life, you're all the dumbass. You're all stupid and brainwashed by the political government programs. You will all see, you will all know who my name is. My love for you, Angie, will never go away. I hope to see you in the afterlife. On one day or another, you will end and we'll all die. What Nicholas Cruz said in this video that he shot on his phone prior to the attacks, is chilling, but it is not very much unlike similar things that have been posted by other people who have done this. Um, I, I listened to a fascinating episode of, uh, Reply, of the podcast Reply All. They did an episode a few weeks back called Invisel uh, about this uh, movement that was started up in Canada for people who were involuntarily celibate. It was kind of a support group initially, and the lady who started it, she was a part of this group for several years. It was basically people who were uh, who wished they had could be in a sexual relationship with someone, but for whatever reason were not. So they were celibate, but not because they wanted to. And the woman who started the group, it was very helpful for several years, but she moved on, and segments of that group have become increasingly misogynistic uh, over recent years to where now you've got a whole bunch of guys who um, would identify themselves as this uh, guy who killed 10 people with his car up in Canada back in April who identify as incels, involuntary celibates, um, who have decided because they've been rejected uh, by women that they are justified in just destroying as many people as they can. And this is scary. This is scary. I think it's scary for me because, you know, when I was uh, 16 or 17 years old, uh, that, that's kind of a volatile time in the life of, of a guy. You know, you're, you've got all these hormones and you're feeling things stronger than you probably will ever feel them at any point in your life. Um. And I remember being going through a very dark period as a, a teenager myself. And at that time, nobody was doing anything like this. Now, I was able to pull through that dark time and, and ultimately get on, on track. But I certainly understand a little bit about what some of these guys are thinking. They feel rejected. Uh, things have not gone the way. Maybe they've been bullied. Maybe uh, you know they're having a difficult time with things. But 
they move from that to a place of screw it. I'm going to bring the whole thing down. One thing you you hear in this this uh, little clip that I played was how he's talking about meaninglessness and nothing and it's just the only pleasure that these people can get is at least I can go out and people will know my name and that is a sad excuse uh, that, that that's sad when your only joy in life can be not only taking your own self out but taking as many people out as you can now we know with with Nicholas Cruz he didn't he wasn't courageous enough to take himself out which is which is quite telling um but i think you know as much as i i don't really get into christianity i i've i've actually was i started a i've been in a series with north shore vineyard where i pastor on the book of genesis and the story of cain and abel i think is one of those stories that that really speaks to uh, is, is so profoundly relevant on what we are seeing as a culture. Um, Cain and Abel is is from Genesis chapter 4. And it is the first recorded murder in the Bible. It is fratricide, the worst kind of murder. You know, I, I did not grow up with any brothers or sisters. Um, but when I think of like the, the worst kinds of murder that you can imagine, it is when somebody kills their loved one, their relative, their own blood. And basically, I'll set the story up. I'm not going to read it, but basically you you have this, uh, Abel was a, a shepherd, Cain was a tiller of the earth, a farmer, and they are coming to present their offerings of, of their work to the Lord. Cain brings some, some fruit, vegetables, Abel brings the fat of his flock. And for whatever reason, Genesis doesn't tell us, but God doesn't accept Cain's uh, sacrifice, and he accepts Abel's. And I'll, I'll read you this one, one passage here from that. It says, God is speaking to, to Cain, and God says, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? I kind of think of this uh, like like with my own kids. If you if you've got you know kids twelve and under, you, you've you've no doubt had to help them with these projects for school, where you have to go get some poster board and you got to stick pictures up and graphs and all these things. I got to do some research and put it all together in a in a pleasant way. And I've had numerous occasions with with both of my kids where. It is the night before they got to turn in a project and they bring me their work and I'm like, oh, come on, you can do better than this. <laughs> Go try again. I kind of imagine this is what is going on here. It is that God is saying, you're not doing your best. You're not living up to what you know. Um, but what is interesting is what God says next. He says, if you do will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door, and it is desire, its desire is for you, but you must master it. Walter Brueggemann, one of the uh, premier Old Testament theologians and scholars, he, he was commenting on this passage, and he says this, and I think this is just gold here. He says, sin is not a breaking of the rules, rather... Sin is an aggressive force ready to ambush Cain. Sin is larger than Cain and takes on a life of its own. Sin is lethal. God's human creations must be on guard for themselves. There is a danger to the life of Cain and how he handles his rage and depression. In the world of Cain and Yahweh, there is an animal yearning for destructiveness that will destroy both the victim and the perpetrator. Freud may have first named it the id, but he did not first discern it. This storyteller already knows about the power of sin that drives even to death. Led by the metaphor of the ambushing animal, we know we may be torn apart by that power at work in our lives. There's another uh, theologian that I know, uh, Michael Harden, uh, in a few years ago on, post, uh, on, on Facebook, he posted uh, a definition. I don't, and I think he, he said he didn't come up with this. And this may even be based on Walter Brueggemann. But he said that the, one of the best 
ways we can understand sin is the destructive ways that we handle our pain. And I love that because I think so often in this world when it comes to talking about sin, I mean, it, it seems like such an old-fashioned concept. We think of it as rules or, 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 uh, or morality. But at the fundamental sense, sin is really just the destructive ways that we handle our pain. We are all going to, to suffer. We are all going to experience pain in our lives, the pain of rejection, the pain of betrayal, the pain of maybe being bullied. Uh, the pain of disappointment or not having things work out the way that we had hoped. And how we handle that pain makes all the difference in the world. What I'm seeing with these mass shooters time and time again, whether it was the guy in, I believe it was Santa Barbara, who was an incel as well, who killed, I, I think, six or seven people and posted his own video on YouTube. He's saying some of the same dang things. These guys have been rejected by women. Things have not gone the way that they want. They're in a place of pain. And instead of taking responsibility for their own lives, they're just saying, we're going to burn it all down. And so if we read on in the story a little bit longer, it says, Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go to the field. And when they were in the field... Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And God goes on to say, Well, your brother's blood is crying out from the very ground. There's something so calculating in the story. It's not that, that, that Cain just kills Abel in a fit of rage. We have some compassion for that, right? Uh, crimes of passion are considered very different from first-degree murder, where there's calculation involved <laughs> and thought put into it. What we see in this story is that this is something that, that Cain ruminated. He fantasized about killing his brother, and he does it in, in a very uh, uh, just evil and calculating way. Hey, let's go, let's go take a walk out in the field, brother. Before he stabs him in the back, or however he kills him, it doesn't say. That's what we see going on in these school shootings, in these mass shootings. So what do we do? Well, I, I think, in a sense, we, we've got to start with our own hearts. We got to, we've got to realize that sin is much bigger than just rules or morality. Sin is this destructive force in our world. And I, I, I'm, I'm aggravated as much as I've benefited from a lot of my interaction and reading, uh, you know, people on 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 the progressive side of things that that oftentimes it's a reaction to to a lot of the self righteousness and holier than thou stuff that we see on the religious right, and and justifiably so. But sometimes in in, in our critique of of the the religious right, we we just tend to minimize sin. There's like there's no such thing as sin. No sin is a destructive force at work in this world, and we see it every time we see one of these mass shootings. So I think on, on a fundamental level, it starts with our own hearts. When we, ha when we get in painful situations, we have got to guard our hearts. <laughs> I remember going through a very difficult time early on in my Christian journey. I was a part of a church that really was, when I look back on it, it, was, it, was, it had all the markers of a cult. <laughs> and it was just, it was wacko. And I remember when I finally left out of there, it was so difficult because uh, this, this pastor who had hurt me very bad as a young Christian, um, man, I, I would go to pray in the morning and, and I would just see his face and I'm just, Oh, I can't stand this dude. And I just kept praying over and over, Lord, please help me to forgive this person. And, you know, forgiveness doesn't mean that, that, um, that you're excusing what they've done, but forgiveness is so powerful because we realize that, that in forgiving, we do not become further victimized by the wrongs that have come to us. And it is not an easy thing. I remember it took me probably two years of praying that prayer uh, on, on a daily basis. Lord, please help me forgive this person. It, it actually took me about two years before I actually started feeling that. And that's why I say when we go through painful things, when somebody hurts us, when we get rejected, I, that, that's the, one of the worst feelings in the world. Betrayal. <laughs> it's one of the worst feelings in the world. 
but how we handle our pain makes all the difference. So the first thing is, is we start with our own hearts. And I, I would hope that, uh, you know, even with my own teenage son who's 14 years old, these are my conversations with him over the next few years because I know, you know, the, these, these mass shooters can come from anybody. And I think it begins with people who get hurt, rejected, feel depressed, and, 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 and they don't know how to handle that thing. Second thing is, I think it's interesting what, what God says is, uh, or, or what Cain says. When God asks him, where is your brother Abel? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not his boss. I'm not accountable to anybody else. And I really think that that, that, is, that is the statement of, of somebody that evil has taken over their life. So it is, we take responsibility for our own lives first. We, we uh, guard our own hearts. We try to live in a way that is forgiving and compassionate and seeking the good of others. But, but, but secondly, as we get our own lives straight, we, we, we don't live cut off from other people. We do take responsibility to the extent that we can of, of paying attention to other people. I, I wonder with each one of these people that has done something so horrible, if there were some people that actually noticed some things but never actually took time to actually have a conversation and, and, and how maybe a conversation, maybe a hard conversation might have been able to break through. Yes, we need gun reform. Yes, we need mental health reform. I do think one of the last things, <laughs> one of the things we don't need is armed teachers. I'm, I, you may disagree with me on that. I know if there had been armed teachers in high school, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you today. I, <laughs> I, literally. <laughs> I went through a particularly dark time, angsty. I was, it was probably back in 91, um, 90. And I had this one teacher that I could not stand. And I was in a lot of pain at that point in my life. I'd gone through a very difficult uh, relationship. My parents had gotten divorced a couple of years before. And I was just kind of untethered and, and angry. And this this teacher, she was a photography teacher. And we had to, to list these assignments that, um, you know, ideas for a photo photo assignments you know, where we were going to shoot on things. And I put some things like blown up school, staged, dead parents, staged, dead teachers. Yeah, you know, I was just being a smart ass. I really wasn't planning on going ahead with any of that. I, I think nowadays if I would have done something like that, uh, I would have probably been uh, kicked out of school. Um, but this particular teacher, I was such an ass to her that <laughs> she actually took me out of class one day into the hall and she goes, I've only thought about killing a handful of people in my life and you are the top of my list. <laughs> um, but I, I could, I, I think one reason that this, this situation is so, uh, I, I understand it. I, I do understand what a lot of these guys are feeling at that point in your life. And you've got to break the cycle of that. You can't let this thing is like a wild animal crouched and ready to pounce on your life at the door and how you handle your pain makes all the difference in the world. The last thing I want to talk about today, and this is probably going to, uh, this may sound a, a little uh, strange. <laughs> I have, uh, I just finished a fascinating book called, uh, how to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence by Michael Pollan. Uh, Michael Pollan, uh, the only thing I'm familiar with, I know he wrote a book several years ago called The Omnivore's Dilemma, Dilemma and I think I saw a podcast with him on that. Uh, but he also did a fantastic um documentary on netflix called cooked uh it was really about the history of food uh in in humans and how really cooking food really helped human beings kind of make this uh huge jump forward in evolution because we could now supply our brains with a lot more nutrients and so we could think more and 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 build civilization so he makes a, a really good case about uh, a food in the formation of human civilization and fascinating stuff but he's also written other books but this particular book is 
is very fascinating to me. I've I've read uh, quite a bit of stuff in the last couple of years on a lot of the research that is coming forward in the area of psychedelics, um, LSD, psilocybin, um, MDMA, which is not actually a classic psychedelic, uh, but but we're they're, they're actually at the stage three trials, I think, with MDMA. Uh, which is known as ecstasy. I, I think that's the street name for it. Um, but with MDMA and psilocybin, these these drugs um, could very well start being used in a therapeutic sense in the next uh, few years, uh, because the science that is as they're looking into these things, it is just incredible how. Uh, psilocybin in particular they're doing a lot of research on that right now how it can induce a mystical experience uh you know when they the, when they study people who are having a mystical experience through meditation or prayer in a in an mri the same kinds of things are happening on a high dose of psilocybin uh i i had a i've had a a, a handful of mystical experiences with God since I've been a Christian. One of them, the most profound experience I ever had was probably about two years into my faith journey. And I was, I had uh, become a Christian when I was about 20 years old after making a mess out of my life. And uh, I had this assumption that jumping into Christianity, that if you just read your Bible a whole lot, pray a whole lot, like it's going to fix everything in your life. And here I was two years into a highly disciplined form of Christianity. I mean, I would wake up every morning, read three chapters out of the Bible, read a devotional, listen to worship music while I'm taking a shower. I would be up at the church every time the doors were open, praying and and serving and doing all this stuff. But after two years, I'm like, this stuff ain't working. (laughs) I'm ready to give up. And I actually prayed a little prayer that morning. I said, God, you know, if, if you... If, if you don't do something in my life today, like I'm just going to go back to the way I was doing things a couple of years ago. I'm going to find me a woman at a bar tonight and, you know, have a good time. And that morning, uh, I don't remember what the message was or anything, but at the church I was going to, uh, they had what, what, if you're not familiar with charismatic churches, they had this altar call where you just go up to the front, people come up and pray for you. And I had several very charismatic people praying for me. Uh, very loud, uh, raucous prayers, and nothing happened. And somebody gently put their hand on my back, and I don't even know who it was or what they prayed, but I felt something happen, and it was incredible. I next thing I know, I'm laying on the ground for twenty or thirty minutes, and I had this um, vision where I saw like my heart was was ripped in, in had this big tear in it down the center, and I saw the hands of Jesus come off the cross and, and hold my hand, I mean, hold, hold my heart uh, in his hands and then give it back to me. And, and it was whole again. And while that is all going on, like God start, like I, I start, uh, it's like I was going through psychotherapy. Like I'd never been to see a counselor or anything. I didn't know anything about dealing with wounds. I mean, I was, you know, 22, 23 years old, I was not terribly uh, contemplative or introspective in my life. But there was a particular situation that happened when I was in high school, uh, which I won't get into the details, but it was the first time I experienced betrayal. And I felt uh, it was just a, things got very dark for me after that. And while I'm laying there on the floor, I, I hadn't consciously thought about this situation much since, you know, I'd been about 16, 17 years old. And God begins to show me that after that situation happened, I stopped trusting people, particularly women. <laughs> I never was in a relationship beyond that point where a woman broke up with me. I was always, if I felt like things were starting to head in a bad direction, I would shut the thing down. I was not going to be the person who was rejected. And that unfortunately I had, it wasn't just in romantic relationships, but I was doing that even with God and with other people. You know, my, my heart was closed off. And so I was living in this place of, of being closed off. And so I get up off the floor 
after having this vision, having like this, this, you know, Holy spirit therapy session down on the floor and things were different. I mean, it was a fall day in Louisiana. Things looked pretty dreary overcast, but I remember I actually had to have somebody drive me home because I, I literally felt high. I was, um, in this wild mystical state and I got home, uh, that afternoon and I remember walking around in the neighborhood and it was a dreary fall day and yet the colors were popping everywhere. It was, I mean, I just, I felt different. And what was, even when the intensity of that experience began to die down over the next few hours, um, I felt completely different for a good six weeks to two months after that. It was the first time in my life that I I, I felt like I began to understand the grace of God that I was completely loved and accepted by God, uh, regardless of my, uh, how good I was doing or how bad I was doing that, that I was completely accepted by God. And it was, it was revolutionary. It was the first time in my life where spiritually things really began to change in a massive way. I share that experience because as I'm reading this book and other things, when they're talking about these mystical experiences, uh, that are induced by psilocybin, or other, uh, particularly psilocybin, but other psychedelics as well. What is recounted over and over again is a very similar experience where people can get out of themselves, um, maybe experience some healing of, of certain things they've experienced and see their life in a new, diff- you know, a new way. And they talk about how in, in, in the psilocybin, how, People feel different. I mean, they, they feel changed. And it, it, it's it's a fascinating thing because Michael Pollan in this book, he talks about people who uh, went through this one study on cigarettes, trying to quit cigarettes. Uh, cigarettes, <laughs> I think they're they're more addictive than uh, heroin or cocaine. You know, it's easier to get off some of these harder, harder things than it is nicotine. Nicotine is, is one of the worst things people can struggle with. Uh, part of that is accessibility within our culture. But they showed in this one study that that they had an 80% success rate for keeping people off of cigarettes for six months. Now, it dropped down a little bit after that to like 65%, but still, I think the best anti-smoking cessation programs have about a 35% success rate. And and the thing that, that Michael Pollan is talking about in this is that when he interviews these people who were able to get free of nicotine... They were able, they described the experience as if they were able to get outside themselves and see themselves in the grand context of everything and how trivial and stupid smoking seemed. These were people who have known their whole lives that if they keep smoking, they're going to eventually die from it. So they know it's bad for them. But knowing it's bad at kind of a cognitive level isn't enough to change you. And, And so... In these experiences, they're able to see things in a different way that is transformative. What's also interesting in this is that uh, Michael Pollan talks about Bill W., the guy who actually started Alcoholics Anonymous, the the biggest addiction recovery, uh, the 12 steps is, is worldwide and the people that it helps out. But uh, Bill W. even kicked alcohol with the help of a session, I believe it was in England, doing Belladonna, another psychedelic, um, and that Bill W. was actually a part of some kind of uh, LSD therapies back in the 50s. He did numerous uh, sessions with LSD, and and he was actually to a point where he was I, I wanting to incorporate a, uh, LSD into the 12-step model of recovery, and because he just saw how promising it was. Now, the National Board of AA at the time was not hip to that. Now, this was before LSD was a Schedule One substance. But I thought, wow, that is, that is quite interesting. Well, sure enough, many of the studies that are coming out on psilocybin are showing how it is so helpful in breaking addictions, not just to cigarettes, but alcohol and other, other compulsive behaviors. Um. But I think one of the things that, that is along with that that is so interesting as I'm reading this book is how many people can get cured of depression. Probably one of the biggest places that, that psilocybin will probably start being used in the coming years is concerning 
treatment-resistant depression, people who have just struggled with depression and anxiety. And what they're saying here, and this is, this is where the science gets really interesting, is when they put people on psilocybin in a fMRI chamber to kind of measure the blood flow, flow, blood flow in the brain, which is a good indicator of what part of the brain is being used, what they found is that psilocybin tends to shut down your default mode network in your brain. The default mode network is really where your ego resides. Your ego is basically kind of the 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 shortcuts to how you handle the world. You know, it's it's just uh, without having to reflect on things or pay attention much. It's just your default way of going through the world. But when you shut down that default mode network and can get out into the higher brain functions and your prefrontal cortex and different parts of your brain that have to do with empathy and compassion, connection to other things, how that makes all the difference in the world. And I think that this is, you know, what they're, what they're happening onto, and this is why I'm interested in why I'm even talking about this today is there's a lot of people I know over the years, myself included, um, who've had kind of these classical conversion stories in Christianity where they come to, to come to Christ, maybe in a, in a church, maybe while the worship's going, they, they repent of their sins, they ask for forgiveness, but they do have this profound experience with God and how so many people who have that experience, they're able to kick alcohol, they're able to kick drugs, they're able to actually start a new lease on life. And that, that was certainly uh, my experience when I was 20 years old. I mean, I was, I was doing all kinds of drugs, you know, I was, I had the the motto of I'll try anything five times. Um but I was in a very desperate dark place when I came to faith and and I simply said God, you know, I I, I can't do this anymore. And I I really did sense the presence of God and and it it was cha- it, it changed me. And I I did not have uh rehab or anything. I just kind of quit everything cold turkey and 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 stepped into a new place in life. But um so I think that these these I'm I'm pretty excited about this because I I and one reason I wanted to even talk about this today is I I don't think there's too many Christians that I hear uh, talking about this in in terms of Christianity. As I'm reading this book from Michael Pollan, I was I was thinking uh, the other day. Uh, pretty much everybody knows probably the most innovative time in American music is probably between 1968 and maybe 1972. I mean, the amount of amazing albums that came out. I mean, just revolutionary rock albums from the Beatles, the Stones, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Marvin Gaye. Uh, I mean, all different kinds of music. The Birds. uh, There's so much stuff that happened as a result of these musicians kind of dabbling uh, (laughs) with these mystical experiences with... Uh, hallucinogens that kind of work their way into music, but th- we we all kind of know that we that that's kind of something in popular culture that we we can definitely see. But I got to thinking the other day that one of the other huge cultural shifts that began happening the you know around the same time was the Jesus movement. And if you look up the Jesus movement, this was this mass migration of counterculture hippie types into the church. And really, when you look at the Vineyard Church, of which I'm a part of, the Vineyard denomination actually started uh, kind of as a result of the influx of this Jesus movement. You know, you had all these kind of ex-hippie people. I mean, John Wimber, the guy who started the Vineyard, he was uh, a former member of the Righteous Brothers and... So you had a lot of these countercultural types that began making their way into the church, and the church didn't know what to do with them. <laughs> and eventually you had a denomination like uh, uh, the Vineyard Start and Calvary Chapel uh, began welcoming in all these types. And, and eventually what you saw with the Jesus movement gave, gave rise to a lot of the modern evangelicalism and um, charismatic uh, movements in our country. But I've never heard anybody talk about this, but I, I wonder, being that so many of these people were countercultural types that had had experience with, with hallucinogens, if it, if it was not, if you couldn't trace maybe a lot of even that movement to having these profound experiences where people got out of themselves 
and had these encounters where that, that were very transcendent and how that really unleashed kind of a spiritual hunger. Uh, and, and, and when you go into even the charismatic world, if, if it is true that many of these kind of experiences that people are having in uh, more charismatic denominations, Pentecostal denominations of the Holy Spirit, if what is going on in your brain when that is happening, or whether you're meditating or praying or taking these substances, if they're very similar experiences, then I, I can't help but wonder if over the next few years as uh, psilocybin becomes more of a therapeutic thing where you could maybe go to see a therapist and do a session, a guided uh, session with psilocybin to work through your issues and have a transcendent experience. I can't help but wonder if we are poised as a country to see another kind of spiritual awakening. Um, and I, I don't know. But... I guess part of why I even wanted to talk about this today on the podcast, I, I think Christians ought to start talking about this. I don't see this as as anything that is, is counter to uh, Christian faith or anything like that. Um, but I think, and, and, and I'm not... I'm not telling folks to uh, go experiment with these substances. I'm just, I'm just quite interested in what I'm seeing here and what the research. And we got some of the some amazing research coming out of Johns Hopkins University, New York University studies going on in England, different places all around the world. And it, it, it's it's very likely these these substances are going to start making their way into the culture, whether they are, are just in a therapeutic sense or whether we see kind of a similar thing that is going on uh, with marijuana legalization in our country. But when I look around at uh, so much of the divide in our culture, um, people that are just so knotted up on the inside, I, I, I don't think this is uh, going to be a bad thing. I, th I think that... Um, to, to see that that maybe some people could have some some real help uh, in dealing with their own stuff, dealing with their addictions, and and uh, getting a taste of something that is is transcendent, getting a, a taste of a mystical experience. I think that's a win win for everybody. And I guess what's exciting to me as I'm reading uh, Michael Pollan's book is that i think you know we, we see so many people that are just prescribed ssris for depression and anxiety and and they're moderately helpful but it's just kind of dealing with the with the the root issues you know more of the symptoms of depression it doesn't really get down to the to the root of it and cognitive behavioral therapy uh is is helpful when combined with ssris but even with that you know you Sometimes people are, are so tangled up on the inside that, that they need something uh, something else. So I, I think that it's, it's pretty encouraging when you see that um, in a guided therapeutic uh, setting with psilocybin, um, some people are getting completely free from depression. No more medication because they've had this this mystical transcendent experience they've been able to work through their stuff and they come come out of it and feeling more connected to to everybody else and and um you know living life more awake and i i think that could be a uh, a really exciting thing so so perhaps we're we're on the verge of of uh, a renaissance uh with with those kinds of substances and 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 i think it's going to uh I'm I'm encouraged when I'm reading Michael Pollan because unlike the 1960s with Timothy Leary and all the craziness, um, it really does seem like these um, types of things, as they begin to work their way into therapeutics uh, settings, that there's a lot more wisdom and the ways that they work on the human brain, the the ways that they are positive, the negative side effects, um, and how these things can be most helpful. So. Anyway, I, I just thought, um, you know, as a pastor, um, I, I think this is uh, an interesting thing that, that people in the church ought to start uh, talking about, because I think as people begin having these experiences, I think having—it's not just enough to have a mystical experience, and I think this was the downside of 
what we saw in the 60s with Timothy Leary just, you know, trying to pass it out to everybody. Just, you know, go just try this stuff. I, I think that's probably the worst way. <laughs> uh, and, and there was a lot of bad stuff, a lot of bad stuff that happened because people were kind of doing these things um, in very irresponsible ways, just uh, DYI. But I think as people start to go into these therapeutic situations and deal with stuff, have these experiences to um, be awakened to a new way of living, you know, uh, I think Christianity uh, can certainly offer people the, the, the rails for their life onto how to live a way that is more connected to God and more connected to other people and, and actually give you some structure uh, in which not only can you have this, this transformative experience, but you actually can get some positive movement in your life in another way. So, um, yeah, I think these are good, good things that, uh, even people of faith ought to be grappling with, um, people in the church. And so I don't see too many people in the church. Uh, actually, I don't really see anybody uh, talking about that. So I thought, you know, this is a fascinating book and, and I would, I would recommend you checking it out. It's called how to change your mind by Michael Pollan. Uh, he was actually, uh, I think on, Joe Rogan's podcast about a week ago. He's been on Stephen Colbert and CBS Morning Show and CNN. So it's uh, I, I think it's it's interesting that we're having a different kind of conversation about these things than in the past. So anyway, I've talked for about an hour now. So um, <laughs> covered podcasting, mass shootings, Genesis, and psychedelics. So. That's uh, probably enough on the buffet today, uh, and I've got some uh, other episodes lined up that are going to be coming out here shortly. But uh, thank y'all for listening to Extra Crispy, uh, this mono crisp episode, and I would love to hear your feedback. So if you want to shoot me a message on Facebook or Twitter, uh, please do that. And and if you like what you hear, tell a friend about it. Send the episode over to somebody and certainly give us a good review wherever you listen to your podcast. So thanks for listening to Extra Crispy, this Extra Crispy Mono Crisp episode. Bye-bye.